What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Smalley Talk Podcast. This is your host, Joshua Shrinko, and we will be continuing with part two of our interview with Dr. Steve Sammons of Auburn University. I hope you guys enjoyed uh, part one. I know I did, and uh, definitely a lot of interesting stuff, interesting, some might say controversial content. Um, so the feedback was definitely uh, good to see on social media, people kind of pointing out certain things. So anyways, um, we got a whole other hour of this, so I uh, hope you guys enjoy it. Um, and without further ado, here is part two. Shifting focus from the spawn. This is like really good stuff, by the way. But Yeah, I'm um, absolutely loving it. So we're shifting from fake threats to smallmouth to actually real threats to smallmouth um talk about so when you did the the drew's podcast um probably the one thing that i took out of that that was like shocked me was the talk about um alabama bass Mm -hmm. and how quickly they can decimate a, a a native population of fish um so talk about like how that is I guess any threat to smallmouth, we hear around here a lot about Asian carp. Right. Um, but talk about kind of like some threats to, to native smallmouth and, and sure. uh, what we can do as anglers about them, if anything. Right. Right. Okay. So bass are in general, a pretty resilient group. Um, when you think about bass in the context of fish, and you think about trout, and you think about salmon, um, you think about some some kinds of minnows or darters, um, fish that have a lot more of a, uh, um, or like sturgeon, stuff like that, that have these real uh, narrow environmental windows. Um, sturgeon need a certain kind of flow, or, or they need certain, they need to be able to access certain kind of spawning areas. and. And trout, of course, need very cold water with high oxygen. Um, and, and salmon, of course, uh, spawn in the ocean, and they need to be able to get back to their native grounds. Uh, and so barriers are a big problem for them. If you think about it in that context, bass as a group are pretty darn resilient. Um, you know, they made it through the really bad times of the 60s and 70s of with the pollution and all that stuff that was decimating our rivers and streams before the passage of the Clean Water Act and all that stuff. And, you know, uh, it's hard for us today to realize how bad things were back then, you know, compared to now. Um, and, and the case is, is that we're dealing with a lot of a legacy issues where some of the things that happened 60 years ago were so bad that we're still trying to recover from them, you know, at an ecosystem level. Um, but but in general, bass are considered to be a, a pretty general critter that can handle a lot of things. So there's not a lot of environmental threats 
that are going to significantly impact bass. Um, you see things like uh, the intersect stuff um, that um, I'm trying to think. It wasn't the Susquehanna. It was uh, the Shenandoah, the Shenandoah and the Potomac um, rivers in, in Maryland and West Virginia, uh, where they were looking at like the, the bass that, that um, I'm trying to remember, they were the female bass that had male um, gonad parts um, in, in their, in their uh, gonadal tissue. It's called intersex, and it's basically probably formed from uh, birth control pills and stuff like that um, mm. going through the wastewater treatment plants. Um, even in, not necessarily like they're throwing the literal pill in there, but the, but not all of that gets absorbed by the body and it gets excreted right. out. Urine. And the yeah. wastewater treatment plants are not designed to take those chemicals out. They're designed to take out organic, you know, uh, stuff. Uh, so, so there's been a little bit of concern about that kind of thing going on. That's been more common. The more you've looked at it, the more you see it. Um, probably one of the worst cases that, that I know of is on smallmouth bass, and it is from, I believe it was the Potomac um, River um, in, in West Virginia and, and, and Maryland. Um, but that's one of those things where it's like, wow, here it all is, but is it really affecting them? Eh, hard to say. It looks like they're still able to reproduce even with that background in there. Um, and, uh, you had those weird die-offs that happened in the Shenandoah or the, uh, Susquehanna River, uh, that I still don't know have ever been really explained <laughs> as to what in the world happened there. Um, so you do have some weird random stuff. But in general, bass are are pretty resilient critters, um, which is 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 good for us. Um, now, having said all that, uh, invasive species are the one thing that seems like can be a real problem with these guys. Um, you mentioned Asian carp; that's been a big question mark. Uh, I mean, they are really bad news on an ecosystem level uh their their impacts are not going to be specifically to to bass as, as opposed to just everything um and bass will will uh join in with that i mean their problem is is that uh, their biggest impact is their ability to basically take out the lower part of the food chain that everybody everybody relies on the phytoplankton and the zooplankton they're extremely efficient predators on that and so the concern is is that they limit the amount of food that is available for everybody else because everything no matter what they are start out eating zooplankton every every fish i should say starts out eating zooplankton even bass and so uh that's the concern there um I haven't seen any kind of work, and I haven't. It's not like I follow it religiously, but I would have thought that I would have seen it, where people have shown population level impacts specifically for bass. I, a lot of it right now is still somewhat speculative, based on the fact that they reach incredible densities, and we know they're very efficient. Uh, phytoplankton and zooplanktophores. So there's going to be some impacts. Um, but how much of it are we going to see in the fishing context? I'm not sure. 
Uh, and I, I probably should probably leave it at that because I don't think that story has been written yet. Um, that is stuff that's still ongoing. And sometimes it takes a while to see those impacts occur. Um, and a lot of the rivers where they're at their worst um, are not traditionally awesome bass rivers. Um, you know, you think about like the, uh, um, gosh, what's that one that goes across Illinois that they've studied forever? Is it the Illinois River itself? Yeah, the Illinois yeah. River. Yeah. Uh -huh. I mean, you know, I don't hear, I don't hear Bassmaster getting ready to schedule a tournament on the Illinois River because it's just not much, of a fish, <laughs> not much of a bass fishery there. Um, so the Tennessee River is probably the big smoking gun. I mean, they're through Kentucky Lake right now. They're really thick in Kentucky Lake, apparently. Um, that's going to be one of the first places that would be interesting to keep an eye on. And of course, Tennessee is all over that. Um, but I just haven't seen anything yet that suggests a, a severe population decline of bass. Um, so I'm, I'm going to say not that there's, that's not a problem. It is, it's something that we need to keep an eye on. And the good thing is, is it is on everybody's radar and they are watching it and they're trying to keep them out of other lakes as much as they can and of course the great lakes being the big headlines um right. but but tennessee is spending an awful lot of money trying to keep them from coming all the way through the tennessee river system which is not easy because it's an active shipping channel all the way to knoxville um i mean there's barge going barges going both ways constantly so that's a really a big challenge to keep a fish that can go right through a lock along with the barges Keep them out of the system but they're trying um there's a lot of work going on um to try to at least stop them from coming any further and then maybe eradicating them or or severely reducing them once once they know they can't get any more visitors showing up from downstream um so i think that's kind of their overall strategy is first cr create no uh, known barriers that work and then they're going to turn to getting rid of what's there, or at least severely reducing what's there. So I think that's the strategy that a lot of places are going. And Kentucky, I know, is all in on trying to get people to eat the things. Um, and they've, right. invested, they've invested a lot of money on fish processing plants right on the river. Uh, I guess that's the Ohio in that case. And, uh, um, you know, so that that's there's a lot of ongoing work on that. And, and I mean... I, if I was a bass fisherman, I'd be concerned, but I wouldn't be, you know, I wouldn't be uh, despondent at this point because there's nothing that I've seen that suggests a major problem imminently. And the, and there's a lot of people working on that issue. So it's not something that's going to fly under the radar. It's totally not flying under the radar. People are on this. So, yeah. Uh, other than, you know, Tennessee... Um, uh, I mean, you know, you don't want to spread the things and people were like, would be like, well, why would I ever spread carp? Well, you wouldn't, but if you've ever seen, and if you haven't seen this, I encourage you to go to the Tennessee wildlife resources agency site and look for it. I don't know where it is, but that's there somewhere. They have a great picture slash poster of what tiny little carp look like. And they look just like shad, just like shad. Huh. And we, way they were getting spread by anglers is it's very common for striper and hybrid anglers to go behind a dam and cast out a bunch of shad up and sure. take them somewhere and fish with them and then dump them overboard, except sometimes 
they're getting a little baby Asian carp mixed in there with them because if you don't look very close, I was, I was amazed how close they looked alike. I was like, oh my God. I mean, you yeah. got to look right at them. So uh, they that was a great comparative picture that they put out there of, uh, if I remember correctly, it was a tiny little uh, silver carp. It was a tiny gizzard shad and a tiny threadpin shad. And honest to God, if you just looked at the picture from, you know, arm's length, you would say they're all three the same thing. <laughs> when you look really close, you can say, oh, my God, yeah, that bottom fish is nothing like the other two. But they don't – you have to look at them. And if you're casting hmm. them throwing them in a bucket, you ain't looking at them that closely. So they've realized that's one way that they were getting spread inadvertently by anglers. Because um, I don't think there's an angler on planet in the United States that would willingly want to remove Asian carp. So, yeah. yeah. But that brings us to the real smoking gun and the one you asked about. Um, the one thing that it looks like bass are very vulnerable to is hybridization. And um, I've said this before. Uh, one of the things that, that you learn early on as in, in fisheries um, education when you take an ichthyology class or something like that, 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 that is hard to... to uh, comprehend i guess is the right word but it's just surprising is that bass are actually sunfish that the sun they're they're in the sunfish family black bass are and uh it always seemed like that's so weird i mean you look at a bluegill and you look at a bass and like they're the same family really you know i mean now if you if you, when you get the into the science it becomes very readily obvious why but still that's one of the things that at least for me was like Really? The first time I heard that, it's like, they're sunfish? Yeah. I would have never guessed they were sunfish. Well, I, that comes full circle, because one thing that we know about sunfish is they hybridize at the drop of a hat when you throw them in the same pond together. Well, it seems like that's the same thing is true for bass. Wow. Um, and so when you have bass that, that you know, co-evolve together, they're fine. Uh, and Tennessee is a great example of that. And so is like uh, Kentucky. Well, the whole Ohio River drainage is a great example of that because you've had three bass species that co-evolved there and they all are love they all get along just fine that would be the large mouth the small mouth well it sounds the like they're bass. sounds like they're not getting along they're just sort well, of well see that maybe the, ra maybe they're racists i'm not sure <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, there's very little hybridiz natural hybridization be between those three species, you know. So the, the largemouth, the smallmouth, and the spotted bass, the Kentucky spotted bass, the northern spotted bass, whatever it is you want to call it. Um, Micropters punctulatus. It, it, they, there's very little, if any, hybridization. Um, I mean, I worked on a Tennessee reservoir for five years that had plenty of all three species, and I never saw anything that even remotely looked like a hybrid. Um, hmm. They look fun. They they get together fine because they've been there for thousands upon thousands of years together. Right. However, when you start taking fish from one place and putting it somewhere else where there's existing bass, that's not always the case. Um, probably one of the earliest examples of this, um, and again I mentioned this of course in Drew's podcast was when Texas introduced smallmouth bass to the Till Country area back in the '60s um, to create another fishery. And it started hybridizing with Guadalupe bass. And at one point, basically almost brought them to the brink of not having Guadalupe bass. And they've done that massive and awesome restoration effort to fix the problem. And today, there's a lot of stable 
pure populations of Guadalupe bass there. But that was right. that's one of the first like wow moments of bass movement. Like holy cow! Um, and be careful. Yes, yes, you you definitely have to be careful, right? I mean, you know, and and this is one reason why you almost never see state agencies doing this stuff anymore. I mean, it makes it makes sense to me. You know, you put in this. It's like it's like a new girl in school. You know, they yeah. dropped in all these all these sexy smallmouth, and these guads are like, <laughs> right. see that? Right. Get over here, lady. Right. Yeah. Yeah. In a, in, a, in a scientific context, what they would call it is there are reproductive barriers among among species that co-evolve together, right. uh, and and when you put a new the new kid on the block there. They may not have those barriers. They may spawn in the same places and actually be, you know, attracted to the di this different species and, and spawn together. Something like that. I like, like, how, you, I like that how you level. took my very elementary sophomoric comment and made it sound <laughs> like I was in any way contributing to a scientific conversation. So thank you for that. <laughs> hey, that's what I'm here for. <laughs> and, that, and that's why he's the best, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Uh, no, that's, that's, that's awesome stuff, man. That's great. So one of the early, uh, another early issue that, that was found was actually in Georgia. Um, so, uh, the Ta Chattahoochee river once upon a time had just three species of bass in it. It was largemouth shoal bass and a red eye bass form that they're calling the Chattahoochee bass right now. Um, coolest river name, by the way, way down yonder. That's right. That's right. And so that somebody's put spotted bass in there back in the forties or fifties. And, and then somebody put Alabama bass, which are the, the, the strain of formerly a subspecies of spotted bass, the strain that's in the mobile basin into Lake Lanier. And subsequently, from Lake Lanier up to a couple, Lake, I'm sorry, Lake Lanier is a large reservoir just outside of Atlanta, Georgia, on the Chattahoochee River. Um, and everybody thought they were spotted bass, although, of course, they get four or five pounds. That should have been a hint that they weren't. <laughs> right, um, exactly. But, uh, and, and then they somehow found their way to a couple of rivers, of, of reservoirs up in the Tennessee drainage, um, Chattooga and Blue Ridge specifically that had really nice smallmouth bass populations. And, and all of a sudden they just started hybridizing the snot out of those smallmouth bass and basically eliminated them. Uh, there were no pure smallmouth bass in those reservoirs anymore. Um, they turned it, they turned into a whole bunch of mutts of about one to two pounds. And that was basically all that was in there. There was largemouth bass. And then there was this thing, um, and uh, I remember seeing, I remember reading about that in Bassmaster of all places or Bass Times or something like that, like 20 years ago or more, it was just ugly. Um, and UGA, University of Georgia did some, some work in the early nineties, uh, on those three reservoirs and just looked at genetics using, you know, what now are pretty crude methods and couldn't even find pure smallmouth bass in either of those two reservoirs. It was what they called a hybrid swarm. Basically, every bass you got was some combination of Alabama bass and smallmouth bass. Wow. And the fish in, in Lake Lanier, which everybody thought were spotted bass, was 100% pure Alabama bass. It's like, okay, so now we know. Um, 
those fish also subsequently made their way over the ridge. That that little part of Georgia is another one of those places where, like, you cross the ridge and all of a sudden you're in a whole different drainage that flows to a different ocean. And that would be the Chattahoochee versus the Savannah River. So the Chattahoochee flows west and then south into the Gulf of Mexico. And the Savannah River flows southeast into the Atlantic Ocean. And so it had largemouth bass as a native fish, and it had a red-eye bass form called a Bartram's bass, uh, which is still undescribed, but it was living in reservoirs and all that. It's a pretty cool fish, actually very pretty fish. And when Alabama bass got introduced into those reservoirs, they basically outcompeted slash hybridized them right out of existence in the reservoirs. And now they're starting to do that in the rivers. And that was in the 90s. Um, the By the mid-90s, they were already starting to see impacts. And then by the early 2000s, they are basically have been eliminated from the large mainstem savanna impoundments. Um, and they're working on them on the two upper ones, Lake Kiwi and Lake Jocassee, up in the mountains of western South Carolina. Um, and now, today, uh, they're seeing lots of impacts in the streams that flow into there. So the next place those things showed up were, was Lake Norman, which is on the border of North Carolina and South Carolina. So they're moving north. Um, and that was this, the really horrifying story I mentioned in, in Drew's podcast, where the only native fish there was largemouths. And they didn't hybridize with them. They just straight out outcompeted them. Um, and it was an amazing thing. Not in a good way, <laughs> yeah. but it was an amazing thing to see because we had a, a, what we call time series data. Uh, they sample it every year, um, you know, just just as general, the North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission and also Duke Energy, who owns that reservoir. Uh, they also have fish biologists and uh, they were sampling it every year and you could just watch it happen. I mean, it was unbelievable. It went from 100 percent uh, largemouth bass to about. 15% largemouth bass and 90% Alabama bass in the space of about 10 years. And that's a 30,000 acre reservoir. That's unbelievable. Absolutely shocking. I would have never guessed that because we were seeing all these impacts in streams and in rivers. But I mean, there, fish move around a lot more. Uh, and they, and they, they have, you know, they have more vectors because you have floods and that can push fish around and all that. But I mean, in a freaking 30,000 acre reservoir, I would never have guessed a fish could have proliferated to that degree. Right. And so that was when did, so my old student used to be on that reservoir. And he's that's probably that's probably how the guys up in Quetico and the guys up in the Boundary Waters felt like back when they first introduced smallmouth. They're like, holy shit, these things are taking over. It is so quick. Right. That's crazy. Right. Right. So the next stop on their trail was once they got into um, to uh, Lake Norman near Charlotte. Um, and this is the problem that you have. And I did mention this in the other podcast as well. I mean, we're starting to see this more and more that when a fish create, finds a toehold in your state, it doesn't stay there very long. And of course, they're not moving by themselves. <laughs> so, right, you know, right. people are grabbing them and they're taking them to different places for God knows what reason. And so they weren't in Lake Norman for 
you know, more than 10 years before all of a sudden they started showing up in the reservoirs along the western part of, of North Carolina. A lot of them have native smallmouth bass because they actually flow west into Tennessee and they're a part of the Tennessee drainage. And they started hybridizing with the smallmouth in there. Um, and uh, now they're moving up into Virginia. And uh, I looked up in I looked up some of this just briefly. So you can find some of these 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 articles on online if you if you Google Alabama bass invasion, you will find these articles. Uh, a biologist friend of mine in Western North Carolina, they found that in uh, uh, Fontana Lake, which is a reservoir in the Tennessee drainage, they looked at 50 smallmouth bass that they sampled. 75% um, of them had Alabama bass genes in them. Um, a nearby reservoir that had been stocked or had the Alabama bass had been introduced 10 years later than the, the Fontana, already 33% of the fish had Alabama bass genes in them. Um, in, in Lake Gaston, which is, is, is uh, um, up a little bit farther north, um, there's no smallmouth bass in there, um, but there are, the Alabama bass got put in there. And uh, in 2016, the Alabama bass was only 8% of their fish sample. And by three years later, it was already a third. And most alarmingly of all is so far, they have been confirmed in four different reservoirs in Virginia as of 2020, including Claytor Lake, which is on the New River, which is a blue ribbon smallmouth bass. Oh, God, not good. And so, these things are being spread with extreme rapidity. We don't really quite understand why, um, why people would do this, but. The impacts are right now very, very alarming. Uh, this is this is science, literally, you know, in real time. We're just watching this happen. We have no idea what the end point is. We don't know what's going to happen. How bad is it going to be? But the early early uh, results are very discouraging. Um, the fact is, is that while Alabama bass do get pretty big, they really actually have a lower maximum size on average than smallmouth bass do. You know, yes, the world record Alabama bass was just recently caught uh, two years ago in California, and it was like 11 pounds or something like that. But that's really rare. Um, I mean, a six-pound Alabama bass is a really big fish that's unusual most of them top out at about five um and a lot of times if they're if they're in a river or reservoir that doesn't have a lot of food you know they only get about three and smallmouth bass regularly get bigger than that and so if you're crossing these fish together you're probably getting fish that's not going to be as big and certainly is not going to be a smallmouth bass anyway <clears throat> um if you think about one of the things that separates smallmouth bass from most other bass, as far as anglers go, is their jumping ability. You know, that's one of the things that makes them so awesome. Well, I wonder about that. <clears throat> Will a hybrid Alabama smallmouth bass jump? Because regular Alabama bass don't jump. They just sit down and bulldog you. I mean, could that literally remove one of the things that makes a smallmouth bass so awesome to fish for? That would be really sad to think about. 
Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, just ruining a river like the new river, you know, yeah. no longer they're, they're no longer pure strain smallmouth or even, you know, I, I guess. So we're not as vulnerable, right? Because we're in the Ohio River Basin. Oh, no, you're vulnerable <laughs> because okay. they're not native there. Uh -oh. I mean, so the Tennessee River. I mean, I skipped over the Tennessee oh, River. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. Oh, no, you didn't. I, I totally forgot about it. I was going up. I was sitting there in my head going up the eastern seaboard, and then you just mentioned that. So they got stocked into the Tennessee River drainage uh, probably about 15 years ago in this little reservoir that I had never heard of, even though I lived there for five years and worked on reservoirs, called Parksville Reservoir. Apparently, it flows into Lake Chickamauga. And somebody put Alabama bass in there. And they took the lake over. Um, and then they showed up, of course, big surprise, downstream in the Tennessee River. And they've also shown up in Watts Bar, which is odd because there's a, a lock there. That I guess maybe they went through the lock or maybe people moved them already. Um, and uh, so we're now see they're now seeing hybrids all through the Tennessee River already. Um, not in a huge amount yet, but this they're they're pretty new so far. Sure. Um, and uh, um, there's a guy, uh, Rick Hart, who fishes for giant smallmouth bass all the way down at Pickwick. Um, and he sent me a couple pictures of some huge, like five, six pound bass that looked really weird. And uh, so he, he got me some uh, genetic samples over the next couple weeks. And I, I sent them into our guy over here. And most of them were pure smallmouth, but a few of them were smallmouth Alabama bass hybrids. Um, and, and so, yeah, you're, unfortunately there is no safe place for these things. I mean, anywhere where they get put into a place where they weren't before, it looks like they either can outcompete or hybridize or both the native bass, which would include smallmouth. And so the end game of this, who the hell knows what it is? I mean, you know, I can't believe that I, I remember it was 2015, if I remember correctly, that, that. The guy, uh, my old student, told me about Lake Norman, and we got that study published. And in five years, they've shown all the way up into Virginia in just that short amount of time. And it's like, oh, my God. I mean, you know, Drew was flipping out on his podcast about the Susquehanna River. Well, I can tell you, they ain't that far from the Susquehanna. And I, I feel like they're going to get in there unless people just stop moving them. Um, I feel like there's like an Alabama bass terrorist group and they're just <laughs> like, it, it, they're transplanting. <laughs> Cause why, why else would, I don't understand why people would want to do that. I'm not even going to fish with an Alabama rig. And I think anybody <laughs> there you does. Go. Right. Right. I, mean, I don't even want to take the risk, dude. I don't even no, want to I don't try. Get it. It. <laughs> I, I'll be honest with you. I don't get it either. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here in the native range of Alabama bass. I, I catch them. Um, I fish for them sometimes. They're a fun fish to catch. They're they're nowhere near as great as shoal bass, and they're sure as hell ain't as good as, good as smallmouth bass. But people seem to think they are, and uh, um, they are an easier bass. I will say this: in a reservoir, they are probably an easier bass to catch than a smallmouth bass because a smallmouth bass. I, I, you all probably don't fish reservoirs very much for them, which is good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because a, re a smallmouth bass is a, a weird critter in a reservoir. It goes from being this shallow water, fast, rocky 
habitat, aggressive fish that loves top waters and all that stuff, to being this deep, moody creature who comes out only at night and 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 you know chases shad and alewives and stuff like that, suspends in fifty feet of water over a hundred feet of water, and you catch them trolling, or you have to go out, like I said, and fish all night long and. I mean, I fished for him in Dale Hollow, and I, it took me about three trips, and I'm like, yeah, I'm never doing this again. You know, I'm, <laughs> it's just not as fun, you know? I mean, you can still catch them, but you have to be really good. You know, Alabama bass are a lot easier to catch. So, I, I, I mean, on one level, I can see it. And the problem is that they don't stay in the reservoirs, you know? They're not staying in the reservoirs. They, they either swim upstream like they did, like, in uh, – in the savannah basin where they just they just went up all the tribs and impacted the native bass there or people are moving them to the nearby rivers too um and that's the problem i mean you know they didn't put them in the new river they put them in clear lake which is the new river <laughs> you know? yeah so right. whoever did that was probably thinking i want to make clater lake better they weren't I'm guessing thinking about i'm guessing the- whoever did that steve was probably not what we would call a critical thinker they right. probably were just like, uh, good old you boy. Know, hey, uh, this would be great. <laughs> I caught this big bass down Alabama. I'm gonna toss it in this reservoir. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. Well, mean, so how do you I tell an Alabama bass a movement oh, ability of these fish? I don't think they. I don't think they understand the dispersal and migratory ability of these animals. Um, I really don't. Um, and uh, they aren't. I feel really strongly that in most cases, they are not thinking about up or downstream impacts. They're only thinking locally. And I mean, I fish Clater Lake too. That's the closest reservoir to Virginia Tech. And that place is a pit. No doubt about that. You know, I can see why someone would say, yeah, anything I could do to improve the fishing here would be a good thing. Um, My solution was don't fish Clater Lake, fish the river yeah. below it, which is a world-class smallmouth bass fishery. But I mean, that's just me, <laughs> you yeah. know? But I mean, it's a shame, you know? And, and it's astounding how much, I guess people move fish more than I ever thought they did. Um, and, and part of it is, I, I mean, it's an unintended consequence of the extreme increase in technology that live wells have had over the last 20 years. Yep, they um, can survive. That allows that them to move these fish so much easier than you used to be able to do it. And right. that's what I think anyway. And I mean, it makes sense for the live wells to be better and better because if they're, they're catering to the tournament crowd that needs to keep their bass alive under some pretty tough conditions sometimes. But the unintended consequences of that is people are using them to move their fish. So um, I guess uh, like the lesson learned here don't move fish, right? Like, leave them Never. Back. We've been preaching that for years, but it's, you know, too many times they're thinking, what we have said is, don't move Asian carp, or don't move snakeheads, or, you know, don't move uh, sh- shad, or shiners, or bait fish, things that aren't resonating with people, you know? Sure. But, but the bass, the, they're having an immediate and detrimental impact. And well, I don't. I think people may not understand the threat of hybridization. I think the other thing is, you know, the term spotted bass and Alabama bass get used interchangeably right. amongst anglers at times. And maybe there's not a strong understanding that, you know, that these are distinct, uh, you know, genetically 
uh, biologically distinct subspecies. They're not all the same. Right. You know, and, they, and that they will hybridize. And so that's why, you know, it's important for people like you to come on a podcast like this because our target demographic is not academics. I can tell you that. Sure. We make, sure. We, sure. Make 28, <laughs> we make 28 dick jokes per episode. So, <laughs> you know, our, our audience are knuckle draggers just like us. So, you know, having you on here to talk about this stuff is huge because I'm going to be honest with you and it's going to make me sound, you know, like a like a rube. You know, this is a, something I care about. It's something I talk about all the time. It's something I do. But, you know, I have I hadn't done the research. I didn't know that this hybridization issue was a threat until I heard no. you on Drew's podcast. So, right. you know, anglers need to know this stuff. Um, so anyways, continue. Yeah. I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no. I mean, you're 100 percent right. And I mean, honestly, I will say this. We as biologists never would have thought that these fish would have gotten moved as fast far and as quickly as they have you know it until recently i would have never thought to say to my fun my friends in virginia hey be on the lookout for alabama bass because they're in this reservoir in charlotte which is 500 right. miles away from you you know that wouldn't even occur to me to say that because i'm like yeah they got put in this crappy reservoir here down here which you know it eliminated largemouth bass fishery but i mean i, I would have never guessed it within five years, they would already be almost a Roanoke. And, I, and so now I'm like, well, everyone better be on the lookout here because, yeah. you know, and, and, I mean, I can't believe how much these people are moving these fish around right now. And I mean, a few times, like I said, I mean, I can see Clater because Clater is not that great of a fishing lake. Lake Norman is, has been had its problems. It's a deep, clear lake. The fishing has probably never been that good. You know, but but I would have never guessed either that they could have eliminated largemouth bass in, in a 10 year stretch um, until yeah. then. I mean, because that wasn't hybridization. That was straight out out competing, <laughs> you know. Well, I mean, and, I'm looking at like even like the USGS website, just because I, I, you know, even even while we were doing this podcast, my understanding of the differences between a spotted bass bass versus an Alabama bass is, you know, somewhat limited. But I was looking at the native range of the alabama bass and it is literally just like it's like part of alabama part of mississippi and part of georgia and that's it that's everywhere it. everywhere that it's not one of those three places i just mentioned like central alabama northeastern mississippi and northwestern georgia mm -hmm. if, if you're finding alabama bass in a place that's not there it's basically not native it's in that's right yeah yeah, so what's a what's a good way to identify an Alabama bass from like a northern spot? It's not that easy, truthfully. Um, to me, they're not as green. Um, they tend to be more of a darker color than 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 the spotted bass are. Um, if you have one of each size in your hand you will notice that in most cases the alabama bass is thinner than the spotted bass are spotted bass to me are a bit chunky like a 10 inch or 12 inch spotted bass has got some chunk to it you know and the alabama bass is very much a torpedo um, at that length um, if it, you get a fish that's over two pounds and you think it's a spotted bass you should be very suspicious <laughs> you really should i mean i I sampled in that Tennessee reservoir that I worked on for four solid years. 
uh, and I inherited data from from the two years before I three years before I got there. We had a data data set of probably two thousand, maybe four thousand, two to four thousand spotted bass from that reservoir, and only one of them was sixteen inches long. Wow! So they don't get that big. They you know they they get about eight nine years old, and their maximum size is generally about fifteen to sixteen inches. If you get a three or four pound spotted bass, that's it's possible because of that individual growth thing that I mentioned earlier. But you should be suspicious. Yeah, that's a fish you should be well, suspicious about. I'm suspicious about Josh's uh, eighteen and a half inch spotted bass last year on the that got in the angler of the year. It was uh, it was seventeen. It was seventeen okay, inches. Okay. All but right, all right. my bad. That one I sent into the DNR and they they said that it was a spotted bass. But obviously, I didn't send them like a fin clip or anything like right. that. So. Right. Right. Yeah. I'm not even sure your your DNR could identify an Alabama bass. Yeah, probably not. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna go out on a limb here and say they probably can't. <laughs> yeah. Well, if that if that was, I mean, that was I'm looking at the thing right now. That was in 2017. I haven't noticed catching any more of them, you know, in yeah. that same river. So. Well, I'll tell I, you, I fo- I follow a guide on the Fanta- the Fontana, uh, okay. just on social media or whatever, and he's posted some like really funky looking smallmouth and, ca- right. and just call them smallmouth and i was always like they're not I wonder, I wonder what that is because it's not a smallmouth i mean it's right green and it's you know just different looking it's clearly something else right and of course you know you get the common comment of like mean mouth or whatever yeah, yeah. you know that's not a smallmouth that's a whatever but i was always kind of curious about what that is so i think you've you've maybe answered that that yeah. question mm-hmm. for me that's what it is that yeah. is what it is. Yeah, yeah, it's hard to say, you know, to what to keep an eye on for, for sure. Um, you know, I, I, I think it's really the DNR has to, to all the DNRs, uh, or whatever they call themselves in each state. Honestly, if I was anywhere in the Ohio drainage right now, I would start screening my smallmouth or my spots. At least at least that, you know, maybe every couple years just to make sure that they're not showing up yet. Because now that they're in Tennessee, if I was Kentucky, I'd be getting nervous. <laughs> well, mean, then, yeah, I mean, if they're up know. here in the Ohio drainage, I mean, they're not far from, you know, Michigan and places no. like that, too. So no, you do wonder, what's the end game? I mean, are they going to end up in Minnesota at some point? I mean, talk right. about disasters. I mean, oh, yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, we don't know. This is where we all just shrug our shoulders. And right now we're just trying to define the limits of this threat, <laughs> let alone what it might actually end up being. And um, it's definitely not getting anywhere near, near the attention of it's not getting anywhere near the near the attention of an Asian carp. I mean, no. you know, it's no, not even found on anybody's radar. A, right. You know, and this has a direct impact on the fish that we're all fishing for. Wow. It doesn't it yeah. Alabama bass are probably not affecting anything else in your river. They don't eat different things than smallmouth bass do. They're not probably, you know, uh, out competing anything other than another bass. I mean, this is a direct effect of uh, uh, impact on the bass. And that's it. I mean, you know, there's the uh, Asian carp is going to affect everything, like I mentioned. Um, but Alabama bass is only going to affect one thing, 
it's going to affect the native bass that are already there, which the one that, that is the subject of your podcast and, and certainly near and dear to a lot of people's hearts is smallmouth. And it seems like they are especially vulnerable to hybridization with this fish. Yeah. And even if you're not a smallmouth angler, you're one of your chief interests should be healthy waterways, you know, biologically yeah. diverse, you know, things that the future generations can, can take advantage of. And, you know, just having a, having a natural uh, state of nature in your environment, you know, in your state, in your, in your right. county or whatever. So yeah, that's fascinating, man. And Josh, did you have anything else that you wanted to ask him on, on the invasives or the threat stuff? I don't think so. I mean, I think that, you know, kind of covered, um, that was enough threat for me to take it. Yeah. I think, so. I think I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I'm, I'm not going to sleep. So. Yeah, thanks. I know. Uh, I, well, speaking of, well, let's talk briefly about uh, a different type of fish movement, um, migration. Uh-huh. So one of the things we heard you talk about on Drew's podcast was the migration patterns of a shoal bass, which were, just outrageous. I mean, you're talking like maybe up to a hundred miles, mm-hmm. uh, moving over dams, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, have you looked at any of the research on smallmouth migration? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I, I'm, I'm somewhat familiar with it because I had to immerse myself in some kind of bass movement studies when I was working on shoal bass, cause no one had worked on the fish before me. Um, and so I wanted to try to have some context. And obviously, the biggest river bass in the North America, as far as distribution and, and studies, is smallmouth. And sure. so that's what I was mostly looking at. Smallmouth bass obviously move. Um, one thing that I've found, I've studied fish movement off and on for my whole career. Um, but I, the more I've studied fish movement, the more I realize that they move more than anyone thinks. <laughs> you know? Uh, and so smallmouth bass certainly do move. Um, they have been shown to move up into tributaries, uh, to spawn. Um, they've shown to, to move out of tributaries, uh, during winter, presumably looking for deeper, you know, slower water refuges, perhaps in the, in the, in the downstream, larger river system. Um, and then they've just been shown to move, period, um, for, for uncertain reasons. Um, uh, but, but most of the time, when it comes to, to bass uh, in general, because I've studied movement in largemouth bass and, and shoal bass and spotted bass, and uh, um, have not directly studied it in smallmouth, but like I said, I follow the literature pretty well. And... Uh, most of the time, what you're talking about is any fish population has moved what we call movers and stayers. We have a group of fish that, for whatever reason, they like to explore. They like to move around and do whatever their, you know, their life, their, their life uh, strategy is to keep moving around. Um, it could be uh, sometimes it's diet related. Um, there was a, a pretty cool study that showed that you know a fish are 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 feeding on in a, a fish uh, on a bait fish that moves around. They move around a lot more than fish that don't. Um, so sometimes it's just as simple as that. Um, uh, the study I did on largemouth bass for my dissertation, 
uh, had nothing to do with individual fish movement, but I ended up getting a, a, a publication on it because it was so friggin' interesting. Um, <laughs> I had studied, uh, we were looking at the effects of uh, uh, wide scale plant removal in, a, in Lake Seminole down on the Florida border um, on bass. And one of the things I did was tag a bunch of bass before they, they used the herbicide on all the plants and saw what they did and, and all that. And uh, what I found out was in the process of doing all this was that I had 15 fish tagged and I had three distinct movement patterns in these fish. I had fish that stayed offshore basically the entire time. I almost never found them on along the shore ever. They just, there's a lot of flooded timber in this part of the lake and they would just move from stump to stump and almost never come near the shore. Uh, I had other fish that in the daytime, they would hang out in the stumps. And then as soon as it got dark, they would run to the bank and they would spend all night uh, swimming around cattails and all that stuff. And as soon as the, the, the sun got above the trees, they were back out deep. Um, and then I had fish that actually it was four different patterns. I had other fish that never left the cattails. They just stayed in the cattails the whole time. I mean, and these were some of these fish were like five to eight pounds, just hanging out in cattails all day, crazy. And then I had two weirdos that uh, never stopped. Every single, I, I find the fish every four hours for twenty-four hours is was what we were doing, and every four hours that fish was half a mile from where he was before. And he would just do these big giant circles all the way around the embayment, <laughs> you know. So you have these individual movement patterns that you definitely see in these animals. And so smallmouth bass are no different. Um, and so when you look at a movement study, you can see all kinds of stuff. And the most recent one uh, that just came out last year was a, was a, uh, a colleague of mine out in Idaho. Um, and uh, they, they did a study on a connected river system out there near Boise. Um, and they found fish that, you know, they moved up to, uh, you know, about 50, 60 miles at times, mm. but not all of them. Some of them never hardly moved, you know. Um, so some were, some were making these, these long migrations for, for reproductions and some weren't. And there's been studies on that fish and say like, uh, oh, was it Lake Superior or was that a different, was that... I thought it was Lake Superior, though. I'm pretty sure it was Lake Superior. They had fish um, that would go up the tributaries to spawn and then come back down into the lake. And uh, But not all the fish. Some fish would stay out in the lake. Um, so smallmouth bass seem like they have multiple strategies as far as that goes. The, the thing that was so striking about shoal bass was everyone moved. Everyone was going to specific places and congregating in spawning aggregations. And that you don't see in smallmouth bass. Um, and, and you don't see that in any bass <laughs> that I am not aware of. You know, so yeah. that, that puts them out on Mars as opposed to the other bass. Smallmouth bass are more like the other bass where they certainly can move. And some of them can move pretty, consist pretty surprising distances you know, 50, 60, 70 miles. Um, but they're the, they're the weirdos, if you will. It's not a population level movement. Um, but certainly smallmouth bass on, on average, especially in rivers, it seems to me 
that fish move more in rivers than they do in lakes, which probably is not that surprising. Um, but uh, um, fish in rivers, smallmouth bass in rivers, I would fully expect in the course of a year that most of those fish probably move over a five to 10 mile stretch of that river on, on average. That's probably not uncommon. Probably seasonal. Um, and I would say the farther north you are and the more severe your winter is, the more you would see that because the winters are, you know, down here, winter time is probably, like I mentioned at the beginning, they, they're still down here doing their thing and feeding. Might be a right. little slower than it would have been if the water temperature was warmer. But I mean, a lot of our water temperatures are probably 50. That's <laughs> not that cold for a smallmouth, you know? Right. So, but up there, they get cold, right? I mean, it's below 40 in a lot of cases. So in that case, they're probably relocating to deep pools where they can just settle down on the bottom and not have to fight the current very much. And they might have to swim a ways to hit those. And then they spread back out of them. And of course, they would have some kind of spawning areas that they don't have... They're not looking for spawning areas nearly as specifically as shoal bass seem to be. Um, so, so I think it's safe to say that, you know, when you're out there fishing on a river and you catch a fish somewhere, you know, uh, you, if you come back two months later, that fish is probably not still in that spot. It's probably somewhere else. It might not be more than half a mile away, but it's not like they just sit under the same rock or even in the same you know, shoal or, or run and sit there all for months. They probably not, do not do that. That would be my guess. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, hey, Chris, I'm going to let you ask that, this next question because I'm not quite sure exactly what you're wanting to get out of it. So, so um, I think I think we got one more question and then we'll, yeah. we'll let you go, Steve. You're giving us a lot of content. About what you want and then and then get out of here but um so one of the questions i put on your on your outline here is uh you know with regard with regard to smallmouth growth in a particular fishery is carrying capacity the determining factor for growth the growth ceiling um or do genetics play a role in the in the size that a smallmouth will grow to uh and then maybe you could explain carrying capacity as well sure um so I would expect very little genetic control of growth on a population level. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, I don't think like there's a population of, of smallmouth bass that genetically cannot grow very fast. I, I bet that's, if that happens, it's rare. Uh, mm -hmm. Instead, you have fast growers and slow growers within each population. Um, so more than likely, while genetics plays some kind of a role on an individual basis, you're probably not looking at a population problem. Um, carrying capacity is definitely an issue. I would guess in most cases, it's more of a lake issue than a river issue. Um, but but uh, so carrying capacity is basically how many fish of, of whatever species or whatever troph trophic level you care to name could there be can a place support and that's a that's a pop uh, that is a um factor of the productivity of the system and ultimately the food supply and so uh rivers probably um don't ever hit the theoretical maximum carrying capacity 
Um, in other words, the absolute maximum that, that that river could ever hold, ever, ever. And the reason is that because, like we mentioned Stuck earlier, somewhere else. they're yeah. very, well, they're very dynamic. And so you have years that they flood, you have years where there are droughts, um, and you have years where hurricanes come through or, or some, or a nor'easter or something and dumps a ton of rain and, and, and a weird time of year. So they don't reproduce at the same level every single year because of that. Um, their, their recruitment is probably very tied to the flow regime, not only during spawning, but also the summer following the spawn because the little guys have to make it through. And so there's some studies that show that in Virginia rivers, where if you have a very high drought year or a very high flood year, you have poor recruitment. If you have a very low drought year, you also have poor recruitment. Um, the the biologist there, who's who's quite a character, called it the Goldilocks principle. Um, but mm -hmm. you know, you, you their 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 data suggested that a not too warm, not too flow, cold. Yeah, <laughs> a more normal flow regime was your best, your average flow regime. Let me put it that way: your average flow regime probably maximized your recruitment. But of course, you don't hit that every year. So your, your population contracts and, and expands as that happens. Lakes, you don't see that as much. And that's where you can have carrying capacity issues. Um, we see it with largemouths down here all the time in small impoundments, lakes that are like, you know, 100 acres or less, right. where it's the perfect environment. I mean, they're usually lakes that that largemouth bass are the top predator, um, the apex predator, and there's usually just a few other species in those lakes because they're managed for fishing. There's, you know, probably catfish and bluegill and red ear sunfish and, you know, maybe a few minnows that were there before they impounded it that can survive. And, you know, and they, they reproduce like crazy. And so they reach these super high densities. And then that's where you have a carrying capacity issue where there's not enough food for all the mouths and the growth slows way, way down. And that's where we encourage harvest. And that's where catch and release is, you know, really bit us in the ass at times because those lakes used to be fine until everyone started throwing all the bass back. And now you, you see situations where, you know, lake managers go in with electrofishing boats and remove a ton of bass to try to break the deadlock. And if you mm. can do that, you see an immediate response in growth and fish growth increases and fish size gets bigger and all that. You can see that in, in smallmouth bass populations. I'm sure it's probably rarer. Um, one reason is, is that smallmouth don't tend to be in small systems as much as big systems. Lakes, in, you know, they're not pond fish generally, in other words. Um, but I have fished some lakes in the Boundary Waters, for instance, that clearly were that situation I just explained. Um, there was one I can think of just outside of Ely, Minnesota that uh, I, I fished a couple times back in the 90s. And you could have 100 fish days there and not a single fish was over 14 inches and most of them were 10 to 12. And it's like, yeah, there's a few too many fish here. <laughs> right, right. You know, uh, and, and so, so you, you definitely can have that. Um, but, but I think in most cases, you don't see that too much. 
Um, it, it has to be, a, a, it's a combination of a low productivity system and pretty darn near perfect spawning environment with very high survival of, of eggs, fry, and juveniles to where you get that situation. Um, and, and honestly, those very harsh winters when you get up north sometimes will will take care of that because they have to, one thing that they have to do up there that fish don't have to do down here is put on enough weight and i'm talking about the little little fish they have to put on enough you know weight to make it through the ice period where they're not eating anything um and so there's been some studies that have shown that you know in years where uh for instance the fish spawn late you know, you have one of those winters where it just won't end, <laughs> you know, and uh, and uh, the fish spawn gets pushed way back. And then you have an early winter come the next year uh, and the fish just don't reach a big enough size and they have a lot higher mortality than other years. Um, and uh, so it I guess what I'm trying to say is I suspect uh, smallmouth bass being where they are and where their range is and what kinds of systems they tend to be found in are less vulnerable to that kind of scenario than largemouth bass in the southeastern United States, where that's a, a common problem, not in rivers, not in large reservoirs where there's a lot of things controlling recruitment, but in these smaller lakes and any kind of private pond here, you know, the number one thing that we tell private pond owners if they want to get bigger fish is harvest them. Harvest the snot out of them because almost 90% probably, and that might be low, 90% of the ponds in the southeastern United States probably have a stunted bass population. Hmm. You know, they and might also, stun at 12 inches, they might stun at 15, but I mean, everyone down here thinks that you're going to, you know, they're going to have their own little pond. And they're going to have eight, nine pounders in there. And it's like only if you harvest the snot out of them. Like basically we're talking about 30, 30 pounds to the acre every year coming out. And, and alkalinity has something to do with the, the size to which a smallmouth can grow too, right? Like, like if, a, if a river has like low alkalinity, it, it, it can cause the like stunted growth. Is that, is that, is that a true thing? I read that in a bat. You sound like you're uh, doubting yourself. I'm doubting Chris. it without any reaffirming <laughs> nods or, uh, you know, I don't know. I read an article from Tim Holschlag a long time ago, and he talked about okay. the alkalinity in the Cloquet River in Minnesota. Uh, and he said, uh -huh. he said if it has, you know, the river has low alkalinity and therefore the bass don't get very big. And I, I don't know why, but that phrase always stuck with me. And I'm like, like I barely understand what alkalinity even is, but I figured... A man of science is on the phone with me. I'll ask him. <laughs> um, I wonder, okay, so I've actually fished the Cloquet River one time. Um, not serious. There's a friggin' rest area on it on the way up to Ely. And I, and there, and I stopped there and fished behind there and caught a few little smallmouth and a walleye. Um, it's, I, my memory of it is it's a very black kind of water. It's tannic colored. Uh, I wonder if that's an issue. Um, Maybe for there, there that it's yeah. got lower pH kind of thing um, that's limiting productivity. Alkalinity is is basically a measure of of uh, it's not quite pH, but it's related to pH. It's it's a measure of of the calcium carbonate in the water, which in a way is tied to productivity. So if you have low alkalinity, you probably also have low productivity, um, and that would definitely lead 
to lower growth rates. Not a stunning situation as much as just a limit, a limit where maybe okay. the fish can only get two or three pounds. You know, it's not like there's all going to be 10 inches, which would be a true stunning situation. Um, you know, you, you could see the same thing without even thinking about alkalinity. And if you think about small streams versus larger rivers, I mean, there's not a lot of small streams that have five pound smallmouth in them, if any. You know, uh, they just can't get that big in those streams because there's not enough food. Um, and uh, they just, uh, they, they just, it's rare. I mean, there was one stream outside of Cookville, Tennessee, where I used to work that for whatever reason, uh, and it was weightable, I mean, it's, it's small. There were 20 inch smallmouths in there. Not common, but I, I know two different people in the five years I was there that caught, honest to God, 20 and 21 inch smallmouth out of that friggin' stream. Um, but that's rare. Most of the streams I fished up there, if you caught a 15 incher, that was a good fish. Um, you know, they just, uh, they don't, but, but I mean, you know, you fish something the size of the New River or the Susquehanna or something like that. I mean, crap. I mean, there's, legit seven and eight pound smallmouth in those places mm. so so uh you know it just there's more food more space more habitat streams just are somewhat limiting in all of those things because they're streams um and uh so i would i would guesstimate that that the alkalinity is probably not the direct cause but more of a measure of of productivity in that way um so I don't know if I exactly answered your question, but I'm, no, I'm saying that in general, that that you don't see that in a lot of the fisheries that we would typically fish ourselves in, as smallmouth bass as far as carrying capacity issues that would usually occur in smaller places that are probably natural lakes, probably um, up Somewhat north, off. you know, yeah. yeah, you know, I, I would bet the UP of Michigan would have some of those scenarios where, you know, two or 300 acre natural lake that has very few species in it, you know, maybe pickerel or pickerel, pike are always there, smallmouth, maybe a pumpkin seed sunfish or a bluegill and probably two species of minnows. And, you know, that's a very simple food chain, you know, and the lake is, is small. So you can't have like wind impacts in the spring or anything like that on spawning. I mean, they can just spawn to their heart's content and uh, they don't get very much harvest. Um, so, yeah. okay. Well, see, I've, I've seen the oh, a river we fish around here. I feel like got to the point where I, I think there was like a few years in a row where just the conditions were really optimal but it's like nature found a way and it flooded like three years in a row in the spring right. and it kind of just balanced things out. Yeah. You know? That's usually classes, what happens. You'll see classes of fish. You'll see a yes. lot of, a lot of 16 inch fish and then you'll see a lot of 12 inch fish. You won't right. see a lot of 14, a lot of 14s, a lot of 13, you know, a lot of 13s and right. 14s. You'll see, you'll see gap years. Uh, yeah. You usually notice it to me uh, on the bigger fish. Um, you know, like shoal bass, you definitely see this. Uh, I mean, we haven't found, uh, we haven't found a smoking gun as to something that controls shoal bass recruitment, but it does fluctuate, um, to some degree. And a couple years ago, uh, there was this huge wave of five to seven pound shoal bass that moved through the Flint river, you know, that were probably reproduced 
during the drought that I worked on in 07, 08, 09, because um, those things grow like weeds. And, uh, you know, I, I knew that, you know, I'm like, enjoy it while you can, boys, because, you know, those fish are getting near the end of their life. But, right. they, you know, but, you know, no, I mean, one fish out of 100 probably makes it six pounds. Um, so there's not that many of them anyway. Um, and, and they're, they're gone and fishing is back to normal, which is still pretty awesome. But I mean, there for a while it was, it was insane. I mean, you know, there was a guide there over there. There's a guide over there. I mean, his Instagram was absurd. I mean, they would go out <laughs> and they would catch like a dozen bass over five pounds in an afternoon up to about six and a half. And they would do it every day for like a month. And it's like, oh, my God. I mean, no, I, those fish were flat out not in there when I was working there in the late 2000s. Um, you know, we would rarely see a fish over five pounds. And uh, um, it's like, you know, but I'm like, they're not going to be there now. And they're not. I mean, you know, there's still big fish there, but it's back to normal where, you know, if you go out there and you're, you're a guide and you know what you're doing, you're always in the spring. You're always going to catch fish over five pounds just about every day, but not dozens. And so you usually see these waves moving through at the top end of whatever, wherever it is that you fish. And that's usually, you know, the older fish that, that are near, nearing the end of their life. And if they're, if there, there's a big year class, you usually will see it 10 years down the road or so when you'll notice that you're catching a bunch of unnormal, abnormally large fish in, in higher numbers than you're used to. And then you'll go back a couple years later and there won't be there anymore. Um, yeah. so, okay. Well, Hey, uh, this has been great. One, one thing we wanted to have you talk about before we got, before we got off the phone with you was, um, literature publications, studies, or, you know, Facebook groups or whatever that you think that our listeners should know about. Uh, sure. And then, and then talk about whatever you want and then, and then we'll end it. Okay. So, um, um, I'll start with with the um, with the literature. Okay. So there's one book there that I will say, if you, if you're really into bass geekery, <laughs> that well, if you're, well, here's here's a here's a little tip for you. If you're two hours and seven minutes into this <laughs> podcast and still listening, yeah, if you're still uh, listening, you qualify. Yeah, then then you're, he's talking to you now. So that's right. That's right. That's right. So uh, I mentioned that we did had our last Black Bass Symposium in 2013. That was actually codified into a book that was published in 2015 from the American Fisheries Society, which you can buy. Um, and it's called Black Bass Diversity, uh, Multi Multidisciplinary Science for Conservation. And the first part of that book is an overview of every species of black bass, along with range maps and a brief overview of its biology and ecology and threats and conservation. And then the rest of that book is all about the current state of black bass as we know it, including stuff about the Neosho smallmouth bass and the Washita smallmouth bass and other smallmouth bass studies and shoal bass galore and some red eye bass stuff in there. It's, it's a pretty cool book if you're really into this stuff. And you can get it from fisheries.org bookstore, which is the American Fisheries Society. Um, and I, you know, it's certainly worth it. It has some really great illustrations of each of the fish 
by Joe Tomilleri, um as central plates in the book. Uh, it's certainly worth worth a look if you're if you're really into something. If you really want to know, kind of from a science perspective, um, without being too sciencey, hopefully, um, that's certainly something to put on your radar. Um, okay. And uh, and then as far as Facebook groups, so we uh, we run. Uh, there's a group of scientists that that's uh, called the Native Black Bass Initiative. Um, it's a group of conservation-minded scientists who work on black bass across the southeast, mostly. Uh, we've got guys that work on, uh, folks that work on Guadalupe bass and Neosho smallmouth bass and the Bartram's bass and uh, Swanee bass and Shoal bass, of course. Um, we run a Facebook page. Um, it is called the American Fisheries Society Black Bass Conservation Committee Uh page and uh, you can find it uh looking at that looking for that um we uh we run uh, a weekly feature every wednesday a what's that bass wednesday where we show pictures of weird and funky bass or sometimes just bass and have you guess what it is and then we tell you the next day what it is and we tell the conservation stories behind some of these pictures um and so uh, if if you've had been following that page, if you're listening to this podcast and you follow that page, you've already heard about this Alabama bass nightmare going on in the Carolinas because we've used that recently. Um, we we uh, we have uh, I, I post things like I posted the 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 podcast from Drew as they came out, so you can have an easy link to them. I'm sure I will post this one when this becomes available. Any other kind of black bass news that that pops up. Um, and it's it's certainly worth a follow. Uh, okay. uh, I I try my best to, to keep it. Uh, I run most of it honestly, and I try to keep it uh, as fresh and constant as possible. Um, and and you can also through that page submit pictures to us of your weird fish, and we can either take a best guess of what it is, or just use it down the line in one of our features. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So, um, you know. But other than that, that's about all I have to say, except for God's sake, stop moving bass. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, we need to get you need to get that turned into a catchy slogan or something like don't move firewood. It bugs me. You know, don't move bass or I'll kick your ass or something. I don't know. <laughs> something, man. We, we got to do we got to do something. Get, get with the firewood people. See what their PR campaign is like. And yeah, that's right. All right. Good deal. Well, hey, thanks a lot, Dr. Sammons. We really appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, just a tremendous honor to be able to speak with you about uh, these fish that we both care about. And uh, I think your knowledge was will be well received by the people who cared to listen to us all three geek out about bass for two hours. <laughs> so, and if you're yeah, if you're great. ever in if you're ever in Indiana, let us know. We'll yes. we'll take you on the. We'll we'll get you some of those uh, twenty inch stream smallmouth. We got a couple places. Awesome. So. <laughs> Good I'll, deal. I hope to take you up on that. Thank you so much for this opportunity. I always enjoy coming on these things and talking about bass and science. Absolutely. Right. Thanks, thanks. Thanks again. Steve. Thank you.